Hi everyone, welcome back to Water Boat Women. You're now listening to the fifth and final episode of this series. I had originally intended the first series to be all about psychogeography, but as the weeks have gone by, I've strayed from that path and have ultimately found myself here with this book, The Famished Road by Ben Okri. This is a really magical book, with the constant mention of the smoking mosquito coil, Madame Coteau's palm wine, and the pull from the spirit world, one can't help but be induced into some sort of trance when reading. There's only so much you can say about a book like this. Trying to describe it is like trying to explain a dream. So, without further ado, here's chapters 7 and 8 from The Famished Road by Ben Okri. The Famished Road by Ben Okri. Book 2, Chapter 7 The next time I went to Madame Coteau's bar, the place was full of big blue flies. The smell of animal skin and sweat and fresh-turned earth assailed me. It was hot and stuffy, crowded with total strangers. All of them looked as freakish as the people who were there the last time. The difference was there had been a grotesque interchange among the clientele. There was an albino, but he was tall and had a head like a tuber of yam. The man who was bulbous in one eye was white and blank like a polished moonstone in the other. The two men who were sinister in dark glasses now had white hair and curious hip deformations. The youth who had no teeth was now a woman. I recognised them all beneath their transformed appearances. There were others I hadn't seen before. One of them looked like a lizard with small, fixed green eyes. And amongst these strange people were others who seemed normal, who had stopped off on their way home from their jobs for an evening's drink. The place was so crowded that I had to struggle through the tight jammed bodies, all of them raucous, all of them singing, passing abuses and bad jokes across the bar. I heard voices that were unearthly, languages that were nasal and alien, laughter that could have only come from dead tree trunks at night or from hollow graves. I began to feel ill again, just pushing my way through their bodies which smelt bloodless and looked pale. The mutant customers made the bar feel entirely different. They conferred on everything a dull yellow light. The bar itself gave the impression that it had been transported from its familiar environs of our area to somewhere under the road, under the sea, to a dimly remembered and unwanted landscape. Their laughter made the lights lurid. Their merged voices made me twitch. And the toothless woman, breaking suddenly into a high-pitched squeal of pleasure, unleashed on me a surprising rush of fear. I managed to make my way to my position near the earthenware pot. All the seats were taken, and two midgets shared a stool, drinking serenely. I did not recognise either of them, 
but they both smiled at me. The toothless woman turned towards me, staring hard, and then, very slowly, pulled out something from beneath the table. I watched, fascinated by her magician's gesture. When she had pulled it out completely, I saw that it was a sack. I screamed and tried to get out of the door, but every available space was packed. The crowd jostled me, blocking my way, as though they were deliberately trying to prevent my escape, while not seeming to do so. I shouted, and a deep-throated laughter drowned my voice. I pushed, and the harder I tried, the more completely I was surrounded. Then I realised that more people were pouring in from the doorway, materialising, it seemed, from the night air. The clientele kept multiplying, filling out the spaces. They stood over me, giant figures with hair that fell off in clumps on my face. Their multiplication frightened me. The woman with no teeth became two. The midgets became four. The two men with dark glasses and white hair became three. The man with a bulbous eye acquired a double, and the double had a bulbous eye on the other side of his face. I calmed down. I had no weapon against their multiplication. The noise lowered. Everything quivered. I moved slowly, as if underwater, towards the edge of a bench. I sat down. The people who had surrounded me kept glancing in my direction every now and again, as if discreetly trying to make sure I was still in the bar. I became aware of being watched by everyone, even when they were not looking at me. I became convinced that they all had hidden and invisible eyes at the sides and the back of their heads. And it was only when I looked up at one of the men, who was so tall his head seemed to almost touch the cobweb-infested rafters, that I knew the purity of fear. The man had a wide mouth, prominent nostrils that flared unnaturally when he breathed, and two big disproportionate ears. And to my horror he had no eyes. I screamed very loud, and I kicked the man's shin, and he leant over to me and opened his mouth wide as if he were going to swallow me. Then he stayed like that, in apparent contemplation. I found myself staring into the horror of his mouth. It was very dark and ugly, and at the back of his mouth there was a single luminous disc, like a flattened moonstone, and I was horrified to see the disc blinking. Then I realised I was staring at an eye. I drew back in my shock, and the eye elongated towards me, and then moved around like a bright marble stuck in his throat. I spat at the eye, and struggled away from him, kicking and raving. The man made a cawing sound, and leant over me again, his mouth open, and he looked for me, but I had made it across the room. I felt a moment's relief, but when I saw the people surrounding me, I struggled to escape again. Some of them were tall, eyeless women. And next to me sat the three men in dark glasses. 
all three of them turned their heads in my direction. One of them took off his glasses, and instead of the blank white eyes I'd expected, he had normal ones. What's wrong with you? he asked. Nothing. Why did you spit into that man's mouth? The boy is insane, said another of the three. Unbalanced, said the first. Drunk, said the second. Hold him, said the third. Yes, grab him before he spits at us. I edged away, keeping an eye on them. As I watched them, they began to transform, breaking out of their moulds. Their shoulders seemed momentarily hunchbacked. Their eyes blazed through the glasses and their teeth resembled fangs. I edged away, slowly, and found another corner, and stared intently at everyone. The clientele kept changing, becoming something other. What they were underneath kept emerging under the fleeting transparency of their skins. After a while, I thought my eyes were playing elaborate tricks on me, or that my fever was invading me in strange ways, and I shut my eyes. When I opened them, the tall woman with no eyes had disappeared. I ran out of the bar and took the long way round to the backyard. Madame Coto was sitting on a stool, holding her head. Occasionally, she made a vomiting sound and groaned. She didn't have her white beads. She looked like a compressed rhinoceros on the stool. I touched her, and she started. Oh. It's you," she said. Her face was sunken. She looked quite ill. What happened to you? She gave me a sour look, made a desperate vomiting motion, held her stomach, and said, "It was the milk." You drank it, of course," she barked. We didn't. She said nothing. She fell into another futile spasm of vomiting. She looked dreadful. What about the people in the bar? What about them? They were the ones who carried me away. When? The last time I was here. Nonsense. True. Where do they carry you to? To the river. Which river? I don't know, but they are witches and wizards. How do you know? Are you one yourself? Look at them. They are just troublemakers. They have finished all my pepper soup, and I am not well enough to deal with them. What shall I do? I don't know. Do what you like, but leave me alone, or I will vomit on you. She sounded so malicious in her bad temper that I believed that she would do it. I went back to the bar and stayed at the door. I listened to the loud, sinuous voices. I watched them as they laughed and banged the tables. And then I made an instant discovery. I realized for the first time that many of the customers were not human beings. Their deformations were too staggering, and they seemed unaffected by their blindness and their eyelessness, their hunched backs, and their toothless mouths. Their expressions and movements were at odds with their bodies. They seemed a confused assortment of different human parts. 
It occurred to me that they were spirits who had borrowed bits of human beings to partake of human reality. They say spirits do that sometimes. They do it because they get tired of just being spirits. They want to taste human beings, pain, drunkenness, laughter and sex. Sometimes they do it to spread mischief and sometimes to seduce grown-ups or abduct children into their realm. The moment I saw them as spirits, drinking palm wine without getting drunk, confused about the natural configuration of the human body, everything made sense. And then I became certain that Madame Coteau's fetish had somehow been attracting them. I was confirmed in this notion by the fact that they seemed to cluster most thickly beneath the fetish. I knew what I had to do. I went outside and said to Madame Coteau, Your bar is full of spirits. Leave me alone, she shouted. I left her alone and went round to the front and searched for a branch that was forked at the end. I went down the widening path and found sticks, but they were either not long enough or strong enough. I got to the edge of the forest and heard trees groaning as they crashed down on their neighbours. I listened to the trees being felled deep in the forest and heard the steady rhythms of axes on hard, living wood. The silence magnified the rhythms. I found a branch which seemed perfect. I broke off the long wood of the forked ends, lacerated myself on the splinters and bled. I took the stick back with me to the bar. At the backyard, Madame Coteau was still on the stool, looking like a rhinoceros whose horn had been cut off. She held her head and uttered a low wailing sound. I went into the bar through the front door. The disguised spirits were now completely uproarious. They had overrun the place in an orgy of merriment, jumping up and down, dancing to non-existent melodies, fighting, singing unfamiliar songs in harsh languages. The man with the bulbous eye was playing with his other detachable one. A man who had removed his arm from his socket was hitting the toothless woman on the head with it. The spirits were drunk with their borrowed humanity and frolicked in their grotesque merriment. I climbed on a bench and prodded the fetish with the stick. I had lifted it off the nail and was bringing it down when one of the spirits saw me from the other end of the bar and gave me a piercing cry. I got down hastily. The fetish fell from the stick. There was a terrible silence in the bar. And then the disgusted spirit who had shouted, pointed at me, and in a voice of command, cried, Seize that boy! I snatched the fetish from the floor, feeling its potencies burning into my palm, and fought madly past the borrowed legs of the spirits, and gained the doorway. I stumbled and fell at the bar front. For a moment I couldn't find the fetish, I searched around furiously while the commotion in the bar spilled outside. I eventually found the fetish under the bushes, where it seemed to have crawled like a crab. I caught it just as Madame Coteau responded to the clamour. She saw me and shouted, Azaro, are you mad? Bring that thing back! 
In her heavy, milk-contorted gait, she bounded after me. She wasn't the only one. The spirits were after me as well, and one of them held his detached arm in the air like a misbegotten club. I fled down the paths. Their heavy footsteps sounded behind me, and they shouted my name. Azaro! Azaro! The whole area rang with my name. So fearfully did the spirits call it out that the lights changed and yellow clouds materialised beside me. It seemed I had entered another realm. Like animals who have discovered speech, they screamed my name, each in a different voice. I ran behind huts, hid behind sand heaps, but they were able to smell me out. The dogs barked my name. Odd-looking goats blocked my path, and chickens flew out of the bushes in front of me. The trees rebounded the vows of my name, and I felt everything was in conspiracy with the spirits to betray my hiding places. Nothing seemed safe for me. Not the rutted foundations of houses where I was set upon by strange insects, nor the circular well in which I considered hiding, but from which my name echoed. Nor the ant hill behind which red soldier ants deployed their malignant forces. So I made for the forest. I passed Madame Coto's sacrifice to the road. The plate was intact, but the food and ritual objects had gone. I went and lay down behind the great fallen tree, where I had seen a two-legged dog. But I feared I might roll over into the pit and, unable to get out, become part of the new road. So I ran deeper into the forest. The spirits were all over the place. They gave every tree a voice. I saw a rusted machete on the ground and picked it up. The man with the bloated eye pounced on me, and I smashed his arm with the machete. And he did not utter a sound, nor did he bleed. I dug the fetish into his bad eye, and he let me go, blinded by Madame Coto's powers. I ran on till I was lost. I was not sure any more why I was running. I stopped. I wandered amongst the silent, listening trees. I no longer heard the footsteps of the spirits, but from afar I could still hear them calling my name. Their voices were feeble on the wind. It was rapidly getting dark. The wind blew hard through the trees. Trees groaned, branches creaked, and the wind among the leaves sounded like a distant waterfall. Pods exploded from on high, and one of them fell on my head like a mighty knock, and I dropped to the ground. In the silence and darkness that came over me, I found myself riding the invisible horse of the night. I rode through the trees. All around me were silent figures in great masks. All around me were ancestral statues. Wherever I rode, I saw immemorial monoliths with solemn faces and beaded lapis lazuli eyes. The monoliths were of gold, self-luminating in the darkness. One of the statues moved and turned into Madame Coto. Her golden wrapper fluttering about her, she climbed onto a caparisoned horse of the night and commanded the other statues and monoliths to follow her. The figures in great masks moved. The statues moved. They climbed their horses and rode after me. 
I rode furiously and arrived at a place where all the winds of the world converged. The winds blew the army of the statues one by one off their horses and they broke into golden fragments. Only Madame Coteau, an implacable warrior, stayed on her horse and thudded after me. Just before she fell on me, it began to rain. The water, pouring down, gradually effaced her, beginning with her raised arm and made her grim sword. Her arm dissolved into an indigo liquid and poured down her face, and her face dissolved slowly, as if the rain was an acid that ate away flesh and steel. Then her hair fell off, and her head became reduced, and then her head rolled off into a ball of red waters, and her shoulders melted, and eventually her great, massive bulk disappeared, and all that remained were her two big, fierce eyes which throbbed on the ground and stared at me. And then the horse neighed and lifted its front hooves in the air and turned and galloped away, bursting her two eyes with its hind feet. Then it too disappeared, amid infernal sounds, into the effulgent winds. I found myself wandering under the downpour. The fetish was still in my hand. I wandered in the relentless rain, till I found the clearing. I was weary. The fetish seemed to have grown heavier, and its leaden weight frightened me. I threw the fetish into the middle of the clearing, away from the trees. Then I decided to bury it, just in case the spirits or Madame Coteau accidentally found it. I dug a hole with a stick. Water filled the hole. I didn't mind. I stuck the fetish into the hole and covered it over with wet earth, and then I stuck branches and sticks around the hole to remind me why I had buried the fetish. Then I made my way back to the edge of the forest and stayed under the eaves of a hut till the rain softened. I was cold. My teeth rattled. The hand with which I had held the fetish was dyed indigo. The skin of the palm peeled away in wet flakes as though the fetish had eaten my flesh. The rain softened, drizzling, and I made my way home cautiously. Dogs howled in the dark. The wind blew strongly and lifted off the roof of a bungalow and knocked it over to the adjoining compound. The tenants wailed in the horrible voices of those who have been judged and damned, as if God had ripped off the cover of their lives and exposed them to a merciless infinity. They screamed in terrible desolation like Adam and Eve being sent out of the Garden of Eden forever. It was a sad night with the children crying and the rain pouring over their possessions. There was, no there was nothing I could do to help, and I went on home, listening to thunder rumbling from its distant homestead and lightning crackling its multiple candent figures over the great trees. Everything held menace for me. The barking of dogs was like the gnashing of vengeful spirits, branches cracking sounding as if they were about to spring on me, and even the clothes and garments flapping on washing lines seemed so like Madame Coteau, dissolved from the world of flesh, threatening to wreak eternal havoc on me for the loss of her fetish. 
I went a long and complicated route to avoid going past her bar front. And when I got home, Dad was on his three-legged chair, smoking a cigarette. The mosquito coil was on the table. The broken window had been mended, and fresh sweet cooking warmed the room with its aroma. Mum came in with a tray of food and said, You're just on time. Dad looked at me, laughed, and said, So the rain beat you? I nodded, shivering. Dry yourself, Mum said. I went and had a quick wash and dried myself with Dad's towel. I came back in and sat on the half-spread mat. I ate with Mum and Dad from the same bowls. The candlelight illuminated our faces. After I ate, I curled up on the mat, planting my secrets in my silence, and slept as if nothing unusual had happened. Chapter 8 I did not go back to Madame Coteau's place for a while. I feared her anger. I feared her customers. And so after school, I avoided going past her bar front. I would come home and find the door locked. I would sit outside our room and wait for Mum, who often returned late from hawking in the market. The compound was quiet in the afternoons. The sunlight fell heavily on all things and made it difficult for sounds to travel and made the air somnolent. At the compound front, women who had done all their housework dozed on the cement platform. The heaps of powdered milk, beaten by the rain, spread their poisonous whiteness along the runnels of the widening paths. Dogs slept with one eye open, their tails pestered by flies. Little children played listlessly on the sand. Older children who had returned from school changed their uniforms and came out, their faces dark with sunlight and dust, except where the sweat ran down. Their mothers sent them on errands. Transfixed by the sunlight, I listened to the music of distant radios and the muezzin's rousing call to prayer. Across the street, the photographer bustled about with his camera, undeterred by the sleep-making sunlight, looking for interesting subjects. Sometimes he hung up the photographs he had washed in the glass cabinet outside his studio. We often went over to look at the wedding pictures of people who were complete strangers to us. He pinned up some of the pictures of the celebration of my homecoming. Beside them were the lurid photographs of the chaos unleashed when the politicians came round with their rotten milk. The rest of the cabinet was taken up with images of defiant women. Milk heaps, street inhabitants pouring away the milk against a grainy backdrop of poverty. He was very proud of the photographs, and when we gathered too close to the cabinet, he would rush over and drive us away, saying, Don't touch the cabinet or you will spoil the photographs! The more he drove us away, the more we gathered. The cabinet outside the studio became our first public gallery. Every afternoon, after school had ended, we went there to see what new subjects he had on display, what new funerals, what parades, how the thugs were harassing the women traders at the marketplaces, what newborn baby he had captured crying at the world. He was our first local newspaper as well. It was the children who first showed interest in his photographs. 
Then the adults, on their way to work in the morning, began to stop to see what new images the industrious photographer had on display. They also stopped in the evenings when they returned. He always surprised us and began to play up to our expectations. He became very popular with the children. Whenever we saw him coming down the street with his camera, we never failed to cheer him. He would smile, pretend to take pictures of us, and would disappear into the secret chambers of his studio. After a while, we forgot his name, and he became known to us simply as the photographer. In the afternoons, after being driven away from his glass cabinet, I often played with the other children. We had a whole universe in which to play. We played along the maze of streets and expanding paths, around huts and houses, in building sites and in the forests. When I got tired and hungry, I would ask the photographer for food. Sometimes he would complain that I was disturbing him, but mostly he would give me a piece of bread, saying, Your father hasn't paid for his pictures yet. On another day, with a glint in his eyes and a tone of conspiracy, he said, Worry your father for me. I will give you a shilling if he pays for his pictures. He went on pestering me like that, asking if I had in turn been pestering Dad. He then threatened never to feed me again or speak to me till the pictures had been paid for. One day I saw him looking hungry and miserable, and when I asked him what was wrong, he snarled at me, snatched up the tripods of his camera, and, screaming that no one ever paid for their photographs, pursued me down the street. He was quite fierce that day. His hunger and bitterness made him ugly, and I avoided him for a while. His hunger got worse. In the mornings, he no longer bothered to change the photographs in the glass cabinet. He no longer bothered to surprise us. The old images turned brown and sad and curled up at the edges under the bleaching force of the sunlight. In the nights, we heard him raving, abusing everyone for not paying up, shouting that it was people like us who drove honest men to crime and corruption. His clothes became shabby and his beard turned wiry and brown. But even his hunger couldn't extinguish his spirit, and in the afternoons he still went up and down the place, taking pictures with demented eyes and in a constancy of bad temper. The children stopped gathering round his cabinet. We invented new games and played football. One afternoon, while playing, we kicked the ball too hard into an unintended goal, smashing the photographer's cabinet. He came out waving a machete, his eyes mad, his movements listless, his tongue coated with white sediments. He trembled in the sunlight, feeble and ill. He came to the cabinet, looked at the destruction we had wrought, and said, Don't touch the cabinet. I will kill anyone who touches it. And so the football remained in the cabinet, with the smashed glass and the browning photographs. The adults who went past shook their heads in bewilderment at this strange new form of photographic montage. The football was still in the cabinet when it rained. Water flooded the images. Insects bred in the cabinet, and curious forms of mould and fungi grew on the innocent subjects of his industry, and we all felt sad that the photographer had lost interest in his craft. He wasted away in his tiny room, trembling in the grip of an abnormal fever, and when we saw him, he was always covered in a filthy black cloth. 
I felt so sad about his pictures that I began to pester Dad, who always got into a temper whenever the subject was raised. So I pestered Mum, but she got bonier the more I pestered her, and so I stopped and forgot the sadness altogether. And in the afternoons, because I couldn't go to Madame Coteau's bar, nor look at the pictures in the broken glass cabinet, my feet started to itch again, and I resumed wandering the roads of the world. Sometimes I played in the forest. My favourite place was the clearing. In the afternoons, the forest wasn't frightening, though I often heard strange drums and singing and trees groaning before they fell. I heard the axes and drills in the distances, and every day the forest thinned a little. The trees I got to know so well were cut down, and only their stumps, dripping sap, remained. I wandered through the forest, collecting rusted padlocks, green bird eggs, abandoned necklaces, and ritual dolls. Sometimes I watched the men felling trees, and sometimes the companies building roads. I made some money running errands for the workers, errands to young girls who rebuffed their advances and to married women who were secretive and full of riddles in their replies, errands to buy cooked food and soft drinks. With the pennies they gave me, I bought bread and fried coconut chips and iced water for myself. And then I saved some of the money and offered it to the photographer for our pictures. But when he saw how much I offered, he burst into a feverish temper and chased me out, thinking that I was mocking him. The days were always long, except when I played or wandered. The streets were long and convoluted. It took me hours to get lost, and many more to find my way back again. I began to enjoy getting lost. And in my wanderings, I left our area altogether, with its jumbled profusion of shacks and huts and bungalows, and followed the route of the buses that took workers to the city centre. At the roadsides, women roasted corn. In palm wine bars and eating houses, men swallowed fist-sized dollops of eber, gesticulating furiously, arguing about politics. At a barber's shop, I watched a man being shaved bald. Next to the barber's shop, there was a pool office. A man, wearing a blue French suit, his arms round a beautiful woman, came out. I started towards him. He didn't recognise me. When he got into a car with the woman, both smiling on that hot day, and when they drove off, it occurred to me that I had seen the future incarnation of my father's better self, his successful double. I went on walking till I got to the garage. Activity bustled everywhere. There were lorries and transport vehicles and buses reversing, conductors rhythmically chanting their destinations, commuters clambering on, drivers shouting insults at one another, bicyclists tinkling their bells. Traders cried out their wares, buyers haggled loudly, and no one seemed to be still. There was no stillness anywhere. There was no stillness anywhere, and I went on walking and saw a lot of men carrying loads, carrying monstrous sacks, as if they were damned, or as if they were working out in abysmal slavery. They staggered under the absurd weight of salt bags, cement bags, gary sacks, the weights crushed their heads, compressed their necks, and the veins of their face were swollen to bursting point. 
Their expressions were so contorted that they seemed almost inhuman. I watched them buckling under the weights, watched them become knock-kneed as they ran, with foaming sweat pouring down their bodies. Their trousers were all soaked through, and one of the men, rushing past me, farted uncontrollably, wobbling under the horrible load. Further on, I came to the lorries that brought the bags of Gary from distant regions of the country. The carriers of loads were lined up at the open backs of the lorries, awaiting their turns, with rolled cloths on their heads. I watched the men being loaded, watched them stumble off through the chaos. Each man bore his load differently. Two men at the back of the trucks would lift the bags onto the heads of the load carriers. Some of the carriers flinched before the shadow of the bags, some recoiled before the loads had even been lifted, and a few invariably seemed to rise towards the load, anticipating its weight, neutralising their pain before the terrible moment. But there was one among them who was different. He was huge, had bulbous muscles, a toweringly ugly face, and was cross-eyed, I suspected from the accumulation of too much weight. He was the giant of the garage. They lifted a bag on his head. He made inscrutable noises and flapped his hand. More! More! he said. They lifted a second bag on his head, and his neck virtually disappeared, and his mighty feet sank into the muddy street. He's mad! said one of the load carriers behind him. He's drunk! said another. He turned towards them, his mouth twisted, his face contorted, and shouted in a strangled voice, Your father is mad! Your mother is drunk! Then he turned to the two men at the back of the truck and gesticulated again. He flapped his hand so violently it seemed he was trying to attack them. They drew back in horror. More! More! he cried. That's enough! said one of the two men. Do you think we are politicians? said the other. His gestures became more furious. He's not mad, said the carrier behind him. He's poor, that's all. More, more, the giant squealed. Look, go, that's enough even for you. More, more, he said, his voice disappearing. They lifted one more sack on his head, and an extraordinary sound came from his buttocks. His head vanished altogether. The sound continued unstoppable, and he staggered one way and then another. Those waiting to be loaded fled from behind him. He wobbled in all directions, banging into stalls, toppling tables of fresh fish and neat piles of oranges, staggering into traders' wares, trampling on basins of snails. Women screamed at him, pulling at his trousers. He went on staggering, balancing the weights, slipping and miraculously regaining his footage, grunting and swearing, uttering the words, more, more, under his breath. And when he went past me, I noticed that his crossed eyes were almost normal under the crush, and his muscles trembled uncontrollably, and he groaned so deeply, and he gave off such an unearthly smell of sweat and oppression that I suddenly burst into tears. People had gathered all around, People had stopped what they were doing, just to see if this man, who wasn't really a giant, could manage all that weight. They watched the spectacle of that squat, thick-set man, and it was the only moment I saw people in stillness. And when the man, wobbling and weaving, got to where he was supposed to be relieved of the bags, 
The unloaders weren't there. He turned, calling for them. They came running out of a bucket and arrived too late, for he suddenly threw down the three mountainous bags all at once. One of them spilled open, and he stood perfectly still for a moment, blinking, while people all around cheered him and sang out his nicknames. And then he fell in slow motion onto the sacks, and did not stir till he had been dragged to the roadside and revived with a bucket of water and a tumbler full of palm wine. After a while he got up, his knees knocking, and went back to the truck and took to carrying only two bags. People still kept watching him to see if he would do anything extraordinary with the bags. But the only thing he did, after a few trips, was go into a bucker, put away a great bowl of pounded yam, swallowing handfuls that would have choked a bull. The spectators who left, resuming their busy lives, missed seeing him perform an impromptu fandango with the madame of the bucker and then run off without paying, the madame hot on his heels, waving a frying pan. The garage was the most confusing place I'd ever seen. People shouting everywhere. Lorries revving, truck pullers yelling, music blaring from new record shops and drinking houses, cars screeching, women screaming at pickpockets, and men fighting over who would carry the suitcases of travellers. Across the road, a woman was whipping a madman with a broom. Behind me, a thief was caught and set upon by traders. There were boys all over the place, roaming around with hungry and cunning eyes. Outside a run-down shed, the old bicycle repairer sat on a chair, smoking a cigarette, surveying the whole confusion. A bus had broken down and people were pushing it. A woman, fat and rich-looking in expensive lace, was ordering a lot of men around. She looked very powerful and had an expression of distilled scorn on her face as she commanded the men to take her baggage from the boot of a taxi. There was so much to see, so much to listen to, with clashing sounds and voices pulling the attention this way and that, with everything happening in frantic simultaneity that it was impossible to walk straight. I kept bumping into people, stumbling into potholes of mud, tripping over the rubbish that was soggy on the ground. I would be watching one thing, a girl washing a baby's bottom at the roadside, when a car horn would blast noisily behind me, startling the life out of me. Or I would be wary of the cars behind me, driving by so close that it seemed they were slowly and deliberately trying to run me over, when someone would shout, Get out my way, you rat! I would jump out of the way, and a truck puller, dragging behind me the entire contents of a modest household or a load carrier, straining under a monstrous weight of yams, would storm past. I became dizzy, hungry, and confused. No one paid much attention to anyone else. On one side of the street, a man would suddenly bolt off with a trader's tin box of money, on the other side, a woman would be arguing with a customer about the price of breadfruit, while her child was crawling under a stationary lorry. I was going towards the lorry to get the child out when a great cry started all around me. The woman had just realised her child was missing. The cry was so piercing that other women instantly gathered round, holding their breasts and agitating the air with their hands. The lorry driver started his engine. The child screamed. The woman rushed towards me, shoved me out of the way, 
and some of them went under the lorry, while others pounced on the driver and harassed him for parking his ugly vehicle in front of their stalls. The driver didn't stand for it, and insulted them back, and a frightening din of abuse ensued, the women getting so involved that they forgot the child they were concerned about in the first place. I was by now quite obliterated with mud and dirt, and I went on further, looking for a water pump. I couldn't find one, and I came to a place where men were offloading cement bags from the back of a trailer. Again there was a multitude of load carriers, their faces obscured by cement dust, with cement on their sweating eyebrows and on their hair. I wondered how they managed to comb it in the mornings. Some of the load carriers were boys, a little taller than me. I watched the boys buckling under the cement bags, staggering off, dumping them down, coming back, till their supervisor called for a break, and they all went and sat around the outdoor table of a bucker and washed their hands and sweated into their food, eating voraciously. When they resumed work again, I noticed that amongst them was an old man, his son and his grandchildren, who could not have been much older than me. Among the grandchildren was one who had just started carrying loads that day. He kept crying about his neck and his back, and he cried all through the carrying, but his father wouldn't let him stop, and drove him on with his tongue, saying he must learn to be a man, and that there were boys younger than him who were a pride to their families, and at that moment he pointed at me. Fearing that the supervisor might notice me as well, and take it into his head to order me to break my neck carrying cement bags, I hurried on, searching for a water pump, till I came to another lorry where men were offloading bags of salt. And I was staring at the strange number plate of the lorry when I heard the protestations of a familiar voice. I heard the voice briefly, and I sought the face. And then I saw Dad amongst the load carriers. He looked completely different. His hair was white, and his face was mask-like with ingrained cement. He was almost naked, except for a very disgusting pair of tattered shorts which I had never seen before. They loaded two bags of salt on his head, and he cried, God, save me! And he wobbled, and the bag on top fell back into the lorry. The men loading him insulted his ancestry, wounding me, and Dad kept blinking as the sweat and salt poured into his eyes. The men loading him shouted about how he had been giving them a lot of trouble and behaving like a woman, and if he couldn't carry mere bags of salt, he should crawl back into his wife's bed. Dad was still staggering, like a boxer under the onslaught of too many blows, when the loaders dumped the second bag on his head for the second time. For a moment, Dad stood perfectly still. Then he wobbled, his muscles twitching erratically. The bags were very huge and compact, like boulders of rock, and salt poured out of one of them onto Dad's shoulder. Move! Move on! said one of the loaders. Or you want another bag, eh? said the other. For a moment I thought Dad was going to succumb to the dare and be forced deeper into the earth by the sheer weight of bags that could have been pillars of stone. And I couldn't bear the thought of it. And in a voice so thin in the midst of the chaos all around I cried, Dad! No! Several eyes turned towards me. Dad swung many ways, trying to locate the source of the cry, and when he faced my direction he stopped. His face kept twitching, and his neck muscles kept palpitating, as if he was suffering a cramp. One of the loaders said, Move on, man! 
and as the salt poured on his shoulder, tears streamed from his eyes, and there was shame on his face, and he staggered right past me, almost crushing me with his mighty buckling feet. He appeared not to have seen me, and he struggled on, trying to bear the load with dignity, weaving in the compensating direction of the load's gravity. He weaved uncontrollably, women and children scattering before his advance as if he were an insane animal. Sweat poured down his back, and I followed him at a distance, grieving for the cuts and wounds on his arms. As he was turning a corner, he tripped, regained his balance, wobbled, and then slid on the mud and rubbish on the road, and fell. The salt bags dropped slowly from his head, and I thought, shutting my eyes and screaming, that they would crush him. But when I opened my eyes, I saw the bags in the mud. One of them had rolled over the gutter. Dad stayed on the ground, covered in mud, not moving, as if dead, while his blood trickled from his back and mixed with the rubbish of the earth. And then the supervisor came running towards him, shouting, and a truck pusher went past him, growling. And Dad suddenly got up, rolling and sliding in the mud, losing grip and standing again. And then he ran in two directions before shooting across the road. A lorry almost knocked him over, but he went on running. And I could see him fleeing into the labyrinth of stalls, ducking under the eaves of kiosks, till he disappeared into the confusion of the garage market, with people tearing after him because they thought he was a thief. I, I didn't stay, and didn't want a water pump any more. I half ran, half walked the distance home, and I was unhappy. My wanderings had at last betrayed me, because for the first time in my life I had seen one of the secret sources of my father's misery. There we have it. Chapters 7 and 8 of Book 2 of The Famished Road by Ben Ockley. I strongly recommend you grab a copy from your local bookshop. I can't tell you how much I've appreciated the support from everyone who's tuned in over the last few months. I'll be back at some point with the second series, but until then, be sure to go back and listen to any other episodes you've missed. Tell your friends... And if you can, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you're the first to hear about Series 2. I'd like to say a big thank you to the authors and publishers of all the books I've read extracts from over the series. To Dan Lyons for helping me to record these podcasts and for writing the Waterboat Woman theme tune. And lastly, I'd like to say a big thank you to you, the listener, for tuning in. So, until next time...